Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I believe in the New Testament, it describes a form of realism that is a connecting with ultimate reality in which words and action connect. And it connects in the definitive giving. The Greek word here is didomi. The giving of Christ. That is that Christ gives us access. He gives us a reality. His access to reality. His access to love. And in contrast, there's another, it's a passive handing over. It's the same root word, paradidomy, in which the agent simply relinquishes or betrays the word or his words. The words and actions don't fit together. And so in paradidomy, the agency of the action is unclear in that, you know, it's the word for betrayal, it's the word for handing over. And the picture is that one is, you know, Christ is handed over. It's a handing over to a different power. Paul actually will use this word. He'll talk about somebody who's unrepentant. We need to hand them over to Satan. And the idea is that somebody's just sort of carried off. And it is on the cross that there is a positive giving, a gift. Christ gave himself. This is thematic in the verse in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.6. He gave himself that he might rescue, that he might ransom, that he might redeem from the power to which men have been given up. And this gift stands juxtaposed to the paradidomy is what killed Christ. He was given up. And the gift specifically defeats the betrayal. And so this giving of Christ, the giving of his life, ransoms from the power to which people have been given up. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself, there's the word, as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This counterpower to which humankind has been given up and to which Christ will be given up but defeats, it's described in a variety of ways. There's another verse, look this one broke over in Titus. Titus 2, 14. Christ Jesus, who gave himself up, same word, didyma, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his possession, eager for good deeds. So here the giving up accomplishes, you know, Christ giving his gift. People pass from evil deeds to good deeds. It's very clear. Look at Galatians. Here is another example. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Who gave himself. 
for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. And so here there is a rescue from the age, a rescue from one age and deliverance to another age. And then in John there are several examples of this. Jesus describing how he himself gives his life. John 10, 18. He says, no one has taken my life, taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That is, I can be raised again. This commandment I receive from my father. And so here, the specific power of death is defeated through Christ's death and resurrection. That is, I think we're beginning to get an idea of what this counter power is. In 1 John 3.16 it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and then we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And this capacity to defeat the power of death, it's equated with love. And the idea of giving our life as Christ gave his life. And so the gift, the positive thing that we're given, contrasts with a kind of failed faith. This is James' depiction. He characterizes, he says there's actually two kinds of faith. There's the dead faith, and there's the living faith. There's a failure to bring together words and action, and he's using the same word. He says, if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give. You do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? You just speak the words and nothing happens. The words are hollow and the faith is dead. James says faith without works is dead. I'm describing two things here at once. First of all, I think I just, this is sin, you know the disconnect between words and action. But this sin condition, as I'm describing it, it also describes a, an age, that's what the writer's saying, and it actually describes philosophically the worldview of the modern age, that literally people believe that we only have words. This is Martin Luther. He's steeped in a philosophical nominalism, and in this, it's the idea that we do not have access to God's essence. We don't have access to ultimate reality. And so he comes up with sola fide, faith alone. And he's saying this faith alone is an inner quality and it's disconnected from works. In other words, he literally believes that we cannot share in the life of God. So for Luther, this passage in James, he says it's an epistle of straw. We need to get rid of it. And the failure to link thought and action, it gives birth to a conception of God, that God is completely transcendent, not available even in Christ. And it has a conception of language. Well, that's all we have is words. You know, nominalism is language. We can name things, but we really don't have access to the reality of things. This is a description of postmodern philosophy. The postmodern age 
It's one in which we only have words. We only have appearances. You know, truth is a construct. You just watch Fox News or CNN and it's kind of manufactured. And what looks good, what feels good, is good. I think Luther's error points to the failure of the age in which we live. But of course, it's a more basic and universal failure that I believe is being addressed by Jesus. It's being addressed by James. Jesus says he conjoins his word and his work. Look at John 5.36. He's saying that his work and word marks something new and unique. Something different is happening. But the testimony which I have, he's referring to John the Baptist, is greater than John. John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Here is the culmination. Here's the best. Jesus says, For the works which the Father has given for me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. That is, Jesus saying, I've done the work of the Father. My words and my deeds, they completely overlap in the divine mission that God has given me. Jesus embodies a different relationship to words, but to God, to action. Different than even John or the Old Testament, who would be the pinnacle of the Jewish system. Jesus' words accomplish something. And what I want to say is what? What specifically does his word accomplish? You know, it intersects with ultimate reality. And I believe John and Judaism, they sort of point to this reality, but they're not the thing itself. As the writer of Hebrews says, these have been shadows, not the reality. And I believe this points to a prior incapacity. The paradidomy, the incapacity to bring together words and deeds. And this is going to be repeated in the betrayal of Jesus. This paradidomy, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the complicities of Herod. Think of all the people involved in the death of Christ. Pilate, the Jews. They all played their part, but the word that is used to describe what they're doing, it's paradidomy. It's this handing over. That is, the opposite of the giving which Christ accomplished is portrayed in this paradidomy, the giving up, rather than the giving. And Judas starts this chain reaction. You know, in Mark 14.10, he handed him over, paradidomy. He hands him over to the Jews, who in their turn, this is Matthew, they bound him and led him away, Matthew 27.2, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And so the Jews picture their handing over. They say that it's self-evident. If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have given him over to you. Each of those who hand him over, they relinquish agency and thought. They say, well, I'm just handing him over. I'm turning him over to you. And they assume the power to which they are handing him over is just. They even equate it with God's power. The power of the state to kill Jesus. The power to which they are handing him over. The religious authorities. The popular will. You know, the people say crucify him. 
And the Jewish leaders say, isn't it self-evident? Our handing him over proves his guilt. This handing over, it includes Pilate, it includes Rome, it includes, you know, with Pilate, we have the world of the Gentiles, the world of Rome. It includes Judas. It includes the Jewish priests, the Jews, as John will refer to them, and Satan. That ultimately the handing over is the work of Satan. All are involved in this handing over of Jesus unto death. At the end of the trial, Pilate will hand Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. But of course, the Jews can't crucify Jesus. They have no legal right. They hand him back over to the soldiers. It's like nobody's responsible. And I believe we see how the power of evil works in this handing over. The passive agency, the relinquishing to the forces, to the powers, to the political and religious entities, the giving up to power, that's precisely what Jesus is defeating in his giving. This power of death, the power of evil deeds, the power of the age is what is given up to, and this is what Jesus defeats. And maybe the one figure in who all of this is summed up is Judas. Judas is the paradidos. He is the one, he's the betrayer. There's the word again. But the very title of Judas is this counter-giving. He's the one whose entire identity is marked by this handing Jesus over. You know, this is Mark 3, 19. Judas Iscariot who handed him over. He's the betrayer. And that's all, it almost becomes part of his name. Matthew 10, Judas Iscariot, the one who handed him over. And so once Jesus is delivered into the hands of men, into the hands of the high priest, into the hands of the Gentiles, the momentum toward the, the crucifixion, it's a foregone conclusion. But the sin of Judas handing over, it's shared, you understand, they've all shared it by every class of people. And in particular, the apostles from whom Judas originated and with whom he is still identified. You know, even after he's long dead, his name becomes Judas, the hander over, the betrayer. And so at the Last Supper in John 13, Jesus announces, he says, the paradidos, he's among us, the betrayer. And the apostles all assumed they might be the one. They didn't know who it was. It says they begin looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Matthew says that each of the disciples began to question personally. He says, deeply grieved that each one began to say, oh, surely not I, Lord. And they seem to just go around, I guess, Judas and Peter and Matthew. They all said, not me, Lord, right? Not me? Yeah, I think it's a question. And they each see within themselves, I guess, the possibility which resides in Judas. And Judas is singled out, and his sin is singled out. But of course, it's not simply his sin. But in some way, he sums up the sort of worst sin as the betrayer. Yet he is so much a part of the apostolic band, they can't distinguish him. They don't know if it's me, is it him? And they're potentially guilty. They're potentially all guilty of the sin of Judas. 
And it's in conjunction, you know, it's right after this that Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John 13. He goes around, he's kneeling down, he's washing their feet. And when Peter protests, Lord, no, you won't wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then Peter says, as Peter is wont to do, well, then give me a bath. Wash every part of me. And Jesus explains, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. It's a kind of ambiguous term. The holy clean, you know, you still need to have your feet washed. And of course, what they are washed of, the uncleanness which still clings to them, is represented by Judas. Jesus cleanses their feet, yet they still have to continue. They'll have to follow Jesus in the way their service to him renders them clean. And it's this service which you know, addresses the kind of Judas orientation of which they all need cleansing. That is, he's talking about something very specific here. And they're not getting it. What does Judas represent? And what Jesus does, how does it cleanse the power of what Judas does? I believe that's what we're describing. Or what John's describing. Jesus giving defeats Judas giving up. And all of the apostles are included in the foot washing. And you know what happens immediately after this? Peter and Judas' failure unfolds from this point in the story. The specific thing both Peter and Judas are failing to recognize, and maybe their failure is different ends of the same spectrum, Jesus intends the foot washing to symbolize his death, right? His self-giving, self-sacrificial death. I've served you in this way, self-sacrificially, and you're to serve others this way. Now he explains, you know, that already at the foot washing, he says that this is a model for you to imitate. So they get that. They must understand this part of Jesus' teaching. But he also goes on to say, you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? You don't know what I'm doing. You will understand later. The foot washing is not fully comprehensible because they have yet to link sacrificial giving to death. That is, giving life. And Peter, of course, would block Jesus. It's right after this when Jesus is talking about, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, you can't do that. And do you know what Jesus says to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. That is, he's identifying the sin of Peter with Satan. He's going to identify the sin of Judas with Satan. And yet, they can't comprehend the meaning of Jesus' death. They're consistently uncomprehending. Maybe they're unwilling to grasp what it might mean for Jesus to die, let alone for themselves. You know, they're all going to die a martyr's death. And so after the foot washing, Peter, he wants to press the issue. He says, Lord, I'm going to go with you right now. Why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. This is in John 13. And of course, he's repeating Jesus' words. Jesus says that a true shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Peter says, I'm willing to do that. But of course, we know what he means by that. When they arrest Jesus, he takes his sword and he starts swinging it. And he whacks off the ear. I assume that Peter was not a very good swordsman because he probably wasn't meaning to cut off Malchus' ear. He probably meant to cut off his head. That is that Peter would go down fighting. That's what he meant. I will lay my life down for you. And Peter's words parallel those that Jesus has used. You know, Jesus has said, the good shepherd, he's, he's taught them this several times. But of course, they don't understand what Jesus means by laying down your life. Jesus answers Peter when he says that. He repeats Peter's words to him. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Instead of giving his life for Christ, Peter paradidomy. He betrays him in the high priest's courtyard. He said, I never knew this man. And Peter cannot really give. In other words, he's, there's an incapacity, and I think we're supposed to see that in Peter. But not because Peter's a peculiarly bad individual, or even because Judas, that there's something in Judas that is unique. No, I think that what we're seeing in these two apostles is precisely the problem that Jesus is defeating. To pass from betrayal to giving in the manner of Christ, it specifically involves cross-bearing, the willingness to lay down your life. And of course, we know Peter will subsequently lay down his life, but not in the gospel. In fact, it's long after the gospel. But Peter's journey is the human journey. It's the journey that each of us, we learn the lesson of passing from paradidomy to loving self-sacrificial giving. The situation, you know, between Jesus and Judas, between Peter and Jesus. I believe it's only a heightened form of the situation between Jesus and all people. This described, it's not only a moral passage, you know, and that's certainly part of it. It is also a real-world ontological accomplishment. It describes a new possibility for not only acting like Jesus, you know, can we just build up our willpower and do this? But it's describing for being like Jesus in his participation in who God is. At least that's Jesus' prayer. Look at the high priestly prayer in John. In the final discourse, you know, the high priestly prayer, prayer is part of this final discourse. And he prays for them that they would be protected from the evil one, from the betrayer, from betrayal. And he says the Spirit alone would enable them to do this, uh, to keep, you know, to bring together word and deed. And this capacity is described as being a participation in the Trinity. Jesus prays, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. As the Father and the Son are one, may they be one. The unity of the Godhead given in Christ will be carried on in his name. Because he says, the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Here is the giving. Here is the substance of the giving. Here, naming nominating, giving, is connected to an ontological, a real-world participation in God. What we call the hypostatic union between the Father and the Son, the unity that they share, 
the word assuming flesh, it becomes a shared communion, a shared communication with humanity that would follow Christ. Christ's words, actions, are marked by this conjoining, this unity, constituted in who he is. And it's going to mark the disciples. This is his prayer. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And so what is enabled in true giving, in this Jesus giving himself, is entry into a kind of divine capacity. It is a divine capacity of communion and communication. God speaks to us in Christ, but more than that, he gives himself, enabling us to share in who he is. You know, if we think in terms of language, the human word acquires a new depth, a new strength. It becomes transfigured in what it's able to do. The divine spirit now breathes in the organism of human speech. Thus it becomes possible for people to utter the words of God, to speak of God, to participate in God. Precisely what nominalists Luther, Calvin denied, I believe is what is taught in the New Testament. I hope you're not missing it. I am describing salvation in terms that may in fact be strange in Protestant, Lutheran, Calvinist terms. They could not perceive or conceive of this sort of participation in the divine nature because man is totally depraved. And justification, salvation, is outward. It's legally imputed. And there is no real participation in the divine life. That is that salvation has been changed up in portions of Catholicism and Protestantism. The church has found itself on the side of Judas rather than the side of Christ. This is actually an atonement theory that we find in both Anselm and Calvin. The various human agents, you know, who would kill Christ. The ones who hammered in the nails. In this understanding, in penal substitution and divine satisfaction, it's actually the will of God so that God used evil men rather than defeated evil men to bring about the death of Christ. They take the devil out of the equation entirely, ignoring this major motif that we just went through. The devil was behind the whole process. And Luther took this so far. You remember that Pilate's wife comes and warns him. She had had a dream saying, have nothing to do with this man. And she comes and warns Pilate, says, don't do what you're about to do. Have nothing to do with him. And Pilate actually attempts this. Luther thought that any interruption, this interruption specifically, he thought that was demonic. He explains that Pilate's wife's dream was a demon's intervention seeking to impede the crucifixion. In this understanding, Pilate, Judas, the Jews, the Romans, they all line up. You know, that's God's doing that. And I believe this is a result of Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction, of Calvin's penal substitution. That is, to interrupt the restoration, you know, the main thing is legal, restoring God's honor, rather than defeating evil. Interrupting the death of Christ, oh, that would be the work of Satan. 
so that Satan and God actually reverse roles. A theology built upon a legal fiction, sola fide, faith alone, I believe will interpret Jesus' trial such that you cannot discriminate between the intent of Pilate, the Jews, and Christ so that good and evil are fused into a singular purpose. In this understanding, your Roman law and Jewish law and God's law, they all work to bring about the death of Jesus. And God is simply working out this providential intent to punish Jesus under the law so that he might be punished for all. And so Rome, with its God Caesar, is not being judged. The Jews and their religious understanding, they're not being judged. And really not even Judas, because Judas must be accomplishing God's will too. They're not judged. I guess we'd say the devil's not judged. Rome's law, Jewish law, and justice, they're perfectly adequate in this failed understanding for God's purposes. Rather than seeing the trial of Jesus as a clash of powers, this reading presumes that God is the puppet master, pulling the strings, and human law is the instrument that he employs. Good and evil are not really opposed to one another. I'll misquote the Bible here. Because all things work together for good. In the Gospels, darkness, sin, death, uncleanness, and evil deliver Jesus unto death. That's what kills him. But in Calvin and Anselm, we can add God to the list. This splits God against God. It puts God on the side of the devil. But actually, it splits the devil, too. As John equates this chain of handing over, he says, well, this was Satan. And so where Jesus' death is made a legal fiction rather than a real-world defeat of evil, words and action are split. God is split. And we only have the appearance of reality and not reality itself. And this nominalist kind of devolution, you know, this is actually the modern philosophical understanding from Hegel, put her through Nietzsche and Marx, in which we only have the phenomena, not the noumena. You know, the, we have the appearance of things, but not the things themselves, in which power is reality, and reality is power. The disconnect between word and action, between faith and works, or between words and ultimate reality, that just describes the failed human condition. The disenchantment of the world, the disconnection between, you know, God and reality, the nominalist heresy, which plagues both Catholicism and Protestantism, I believe it describes not simply a failed philosophical system, but it describes a failed humanity, a failed understanding of what we have in Christ. And the alternative is to see human government, human notions of law and justice, they come into conflict with divine salvation. If there ever were a point in history where two worlds, two notions of truth, two economies, two notions of justice stood opposed, it must be in the death of Jesus, in the trial of Jesus. Christ is confronting evil in the form of Judas, in the form of Pilate in the form of the leading Jews who are actually misrepresenting Jewish law and religion. And all of these forces unite 
conspire to hand him over. And this is not the law of God, but it is the culmination of the outworking of the law of sin and death. Christ has not come to fulfill this law, but to expose it, to defeat it for an abomination. Under this law, man passes judgment on God incarnate. That is, they would crucify him. But the very purpose of the incarnation and this trial of Jesus, this death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, is to overturn human judgments. And so it's precisely in the midst of this, this handing over that God has delivered him over for us all. That is, the confrontation between Jesus and Judas is precisely the point where the light confronts the darkness, where the devil would do his worst, where evil would kill the Son of Glory, and where God would absorb this handing over, defeat it, and reverse it. And this transfigured word stands over and against a kind of failed human word. As Christ giving, it contravenes, it interrupts, it changes up the universal condition of which we're a part. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.